Welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 8th of December with me, Ian Welsh. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Dominic Klausner, Director for Regenerative Agriculture at SAI Platform. We talked about the rise and rise of Regen Ag and the need for traceability at all stages in the value chain. That's to come. First to some sustainable business news, this week with Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson. As global leaders, negotiators, businesses, NGOs and other stakeholders continue discussions at COP28 in Dubai this week, several pledges have been made. In terms of food systems, the Emirates Declaration on Sustainable Agriculture, Resilient Food Systems and Climate Action has been initially endorsed by 134 heads of state. This marks the first ever leaders-level declaration on food systems and climate at a COP, highlighting the increased focus on the critical need to protect food systems whilst reducing emissions. The declaration includes a time-bound commitment to include food and land use in countries' nationally determined contributions, national adaptation plans, long-term strategies and national biodiversity strategies and action plans by 2025. The declaration has been mirrored by a non-state actor call to action by a broad coalition of businesses, cities, consumers, civil society and farmers. At the business level, six of the world's largest dairy companies under the Dairy Methane Action Alliance have committed to begin voluntary disclosure of their methane emissions by mid-2024. Danone, Bell Group, General Mills, Lactalis USA, Kraft Heinz and Nestle have also pledged to write methane action plans by the end of 2024 as well. According to a 2021 assessment by the Climate and Clean Air Coalition and the UNEP, cutting human-caused methane by 45% this decade would keep global warming under 2 degrees Celsius. Several commitments and pledges have also been made around energy, the conference has seen 118 countries pledge to triple the world's renewable capacity and double energy efficiency by 2030 as part of the route to cut global fossil fuel usage. The pledge states that tripling renewable energy would help remove fossil fuels from the world's energy system by 2050 at the latest. On the summit's energy-themed day, several countries have made new fossil fuel commitments. Spain, Kenya and Samoa have joined the BOGA, the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance group of nations which have pledged to phase out domestic oil and gas production. The alliance itself has announced grants of $1 million to members Kenya and Colombia to support a just transition away from oil and gas. The PPCA, Powering Past Coal Alliance, led by the UK and Canada, has also seen several new members join in recent days, including Malta, the UAE, Norway, Cyprus and the US. As for the negotiations, the first ever global stock take itself is still likely to undergo numerous revisions ahead of the end of COP before any agreement is made between the nearly 200 negotiating parties. The European Parliament and Council have reached a provisional agreement on the Eco-Design for Sustainable Products Regulation, or ESPR. This is a new law aiming to make sustainable products that last longer, use energy and resources more efficiently, contain fewer substance of concern, and include more recycled content, the new norm for EU countries. It will also require products to be easier to repair and to recycle. As a result of the new law, more information on the sustainability characteristics of products will be made available, including through a digital product passport, which will help consumers and businesses make more sustainable product choices and help authorities improve enforcement. 
The next steps are for the European Parliament and Council to formally adopt the new regulation and, once adopted, for the regulation to enter into force on the 20th day following its publication in the official journal. Following Innovation Forum Sustainable Commodities and Landscapes Conference, I had a conversation with Director for Regenerative Agriculture at SAI Platform, Dominic Klausner. We're going to reflect on some of the issues from the recent Innovation Forum Sustainable Commodities and Landscapes Conference. Regenerative agriculture is certainly one of the buzz topics of the year. Dominic, how do you characterise the shift we are seeing towards regenerative agriculture approaches? The first thing that I really appreciate, and that is really good news, is that great momentum behind regenerative agriculture. There's most of our members, and Site Platform has roughly 200 members, and most of the companies present at the conference we were together this week have intentions and have a program or impact goals devoted to regenerative agriculture. That's great. There's also an alignment around the term. And there is some investment behind it. Many companies actually invest in their own resources, in their own procurement structure and so forth, to shift to regenerative agriculture and also to incentivize farmers and suppliers to go there. I think the one challenge I see, and it's still ongoing, is what is regenerative agriculture? And there's a need for a better understanding and probably a better definition of what it is. And one example I can give you is that one company I consulted with, They have quite an ambitious sustainable agricultural program and they said, oh, we want to have a big acreage to be on the regenerative agriculture by 2030. And that called us in this year. They said, we have this commitment, but we don't know what regenerative agriculture is. Can you please help us? And I think that's where we need, as a pre-competitive outfit, as a side platform, but also member companies or companies in the consumer goods sector need to develop a better understanding and a vision of what regenerative agriculture in their supply chains, in the farming systems they work with, looks like, and also create more visibility. And maybe that's more of a European thing than a North American thing. But I did a survey amongst my family members who are all not into agriculture and not into sciences. And guess what? Zero percent of the respondents knew what regenerative agriculture is. So there's quite some homework to be done on that. You see, there's alignment behind the term, but you're right, there's definitely, as of yet, no real consensus, I think, overall, as to what the term means. Perhaps it's a good thing that it's quite a broad term, because it then is something that everyone can feel they can get behind, whereas sometimes things that are very narrowly defined are more difficult. I guess it's a case where the definitions will evolve over time. What are the key risks and opportunities from this shift towards regenerative agriculture? I think the one thing is just what you hinted at by probably being a good thing of it being not too strictly defined. And I would agree with that. But of course, if you are not precise enough, there's always a risk of greenwashing. There's a risk of painting a vision of a pink unicorn that might not exist. I think we have to be careful there. For instance, organic agriculture was very good in giving organic farming a face. It might not always depict the reality, but there needs to be sort of an agreement on what strategy or what philosophy of farming regenerative agriculture is. There was a good paper by a professor called Ken Giller who said, there's still these main fractions. Is it conventional or is it organic? And I think Regen Ag wants to be both, but that's a difficult one, especially if the uh, ideological minefield is already in front of your house, uh, in front of your door. That risk of diluting standard and greenwashing, I think that's one to be taken care of. The other thing about regenerative agriculture, again, comes with the not so strict terminology is that we see a lot of companies doing their own thing, having their own framework for regenerative agriculture, having their own standards. That's confusing to consumers, but it's also very, very difficult for farmers because it traps you in a certain supply chain. And you don't know what Regen Ag is if company A says this is Regen Ag and company B says this is Regen Ag and maybe rejects production from you as a result of you not endorsing that framework. 
it just creates a very difficult system. So more standardization, I think I would salute that and a slightly stricter definition of what it is and more, more importantly, what it isn't. I would also strongly recommend that. The third risk, and then I stop with the bad news, is probably also, I think that there's the rightful term, you can only manage what you can measure. And many people see the best proxy of Regenac being carbon emission reductions. But that's just one way how farming interacts with the environment. And it's underestimating the fact that farming is a business and most farmers do farming to have a livelihood. And I think we need to make sure that we keep on having a, a broad view rather than a narrow view on only one indicator that region Act can serve. Where I see some risks, I think on the opportunities, I think the momentum is immense. There's so much traction behind region Act, so many commitments agricultural sustainability for now 20 years, oftentimes commitments were words on paper or words at conferences. I see now these commitments are honored with investment, with capability building within companies, but also with farmers and so forth. So it's great to see that. And I think it leads into the right direction. The other opportunity I see, and quite frankly, I haven't seen that always, is that influence slash interest of working together. Some oftentimes there was some disconnect between public and private sectors. There was an ideological disconnect between what farming should look like. I think we are talking much more to each other these days, and we are really, really much more interested in finding common solutions. So that's great news. And then thirdly, although this was always there and it keeps on being there, is but there's so much innovation in agriculture happening right now. So much innovation that can drive up the efficiency of input use, that can drive the efficiency of farming, that can really change the game in farming. I think this is great news. If we use that innovation the right way, we can make farming much more regenerative than it is today. We're definitely seeing also many more commodity buyers looking for the traceability and transparency in their supply chains that gives them the confidence that things are improving. What does best practice look like for you then in achieving traceability and transparency? First and foremost, I have to admit here that I'm not an expert in data transparency in supply chains. I'm more an agronomist, a farm level player in the value chain. One best step would be really having shared and agreed definitions and frameworks and principles. Um, As said, if you have different requirements at different levels of the value chain, that makes life difficult. And we see that also within, you know, the membership of the site platform, for instance, where we have traders. And of course, traders are very interested or, or very keen on understanding what processors want. And we work together with these two players of the value chain at site platform because they're the ones that then, you know, are the off takers of the product. We need to make sure that the expectations are clear and transparent at every level of the value chain and they're properly communicated and properly agreed on. I think the other aspect that's maybe less on how data is valued, and we can come back to that later, there's different needs in the value chain. So scope three emission reductions are something that, you know, processors are very interested for regulatory reasons, probably also for other reasons. At farm level, there's not that much interest in reducing emissions unless it has an impact on the bottom line of the business of farming. How can we make sure that we share costs of, for instance, collecting and reporting on that data equally and, you know, we distribute the the workload on generating and reporting that data in an equal and inclusive manner across the value chain? Number of tools around, of course, that can help. What makes for you a good tool in this regard? Sometimes I have a feeling that it's a very unconsolidated market. And for instance, um, in my previous job, We looked at remote sensing satellite-based imagery solutions that were promised to offer a certain data on soil organic matter and so forth. And it was very confusing to me. We had to get in an outside consultancy and then there was many tools might not be ready to do that in particular farming systems. 
a good requirement for a tool is that it works as simple as it sounds and that it has the evidence from being applied that it works. So robustness. I think what we see sometimes with tools is that they're quite complex. We use a friendliness and avoiding unnecessary complexity might be another thing. But again, this is more a generic statement that I have on that. So were there any examples from the conference that you could point to? Of course, chat about so we can't be specific. In general, any sorts of examples that you picked up on? There was one good example that a colleague showed a tree outside the conference building on the street and said, you know, if you look at the pure definition, you would say that's a forest because you have more than, I don't know, a certain number of trees in a certain area, but it was just a tree on the street. Of course, we have to be careful then whether we measure the right things, we have the right definition and we use the right tools for that. So if a tool says tells you that a street or a road is a forest, you might have the wrong tool. One aspect is having the right tools, but the other aspect is asking the right questions. Yeah, we also want, at Site Platform, we want to help our members getting the right tools, but also getting the right answers. There are risks of letting you know, the perfect be the enemy of the good. To what extent are you seeing that? I think there's two aspects to that. One is, yes, I see that. And I think we should pilot and trial many more solutions at small scale. We should be much more ambitious, much more impatient. Whatever we get hold of, we should try it. And hopefully, if it works, we can then scale it. So overall... We have to go for good solutions and see whether they're robust enough to be applied. On the other hand, and this is underlining my reputation as, again, with the previous organization that was called the patient pessimist, um, is particularly in data requirements. We have a lot of expectations on data we want to squeeze out of food production and out of the value chain particularly at the production side, that might unleash a lot of requirements on farmers. We have to be sure in order to be fair to them. We have to be sure that this data is really needed. We have to be sure that this data really helps them accessing sales channels, that they get a premium price or that they get a good price for generating and reporting on that data. This is really the right data collected the right way. Otherwise, I see that there is a risk of us just collecting a lot of data and causing a lot of inefficiency without a benefit for that. Long story short, I think as long as the good is the enemy of the perfect, I would go for the good. I think in some aspects, the mediocre might be the enemy of the perfect. And there I would strongly suggest that we we pilot more, we stress test more, lead farms with pilot farms or whatever, and let the solution become good before we shout it out into the forest. Your point around the demands on farmers is a really big one. Again, a lot of conversations about that this week at the event. Farmers need to be rewarded for making the changes that are asked of them. And we had instances where we could see that farmers weren't being rewarded for the changes that were being asked of them. So it's really important that they do see the benefit. And it's not just a question of all input for them and nothing in return. I think it's also farmers need to understand why this data is collected and why it's relevant. I can give you examples, again, from my work. Farmers sometimes don't want to report on the acreage they farm on. Because if that gets into the public domain or if it gets shared, tax people are more interested in them and so forth. Farmers are also in competition with themselves. They don't want to reveal everything to their neighbors and whatsoever. I mean, it's not just part of a value chain, there's competition within. So we just have to make sure that we treat that part of the value chain as we would treat others in terms of workload and also transparency and so forth. And it's been really interesting to see how all that changes as we go forward, as the increased demand for transparency and traceability are met, and all the other aspects of the developing the regenerative agriculture approach. Because as you said, you need to be able to measure these things, but working with the farmers to get that right is going to be really interesting. Well, let's perhaps come back and talk about it again in a year, Dominic, and see what we got to. But for now, Dominic Klausner from SEI Platform, thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. 
The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Look out for some reflections on the issues raised at our recent webinar looking at web, human rights and Red Plus forest projects. We'll be back with the Monday briefing next week and the podcast on Thursday as usual. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye. Mm-hmm.